This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers stay clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big money at Menards. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Lizanne Froon and Chris Kremers? This seems like a fairly straightforward case, but when you get into it, it's actually fairly complex. So really interesting, and there's a lot of information available beyond what I'm going to put in this video. As always, the links to all the sources I used are in the description for this video. I'll start with the timeline, then I'll move to my analysis. 22-year-old Lizanne Froon and 21-year-old Chris Kremers were students from the Netherlands. On March 14, 2014, they traveled from the Netherlands to Panama. They made the journey because they wanted to volunteer and have a bit of a vacation. They initially spent some time on the coast, visiting various restaurants and learning Spanish. They met two Dutch men who were also visiting the area. The pair took a lot of pictures, so their activities are actually reasonably well documented. On March 29, they made their way to the town of Boquet on the west side of Panama. The volunteering they hoped to do was at a program at a children's school in that town. They ended up arriving prior to when the program actually started due to a miscommunication. They were told that they could not teach the children as planned. They would have to wait a week. Both of the women kept a diary. Chris noted in her diary that the people at the program were rude and not at all friendly. I guess as opposed to rude and super friendly. The pair decided to stay in the area and do sightseeing. They may have attempted to volunteer at other schools as well. So they were still looking to complete the altruistic mission that they had set out on. The women hired a tour guide that was supposed to show them around the area on April 2, 2014. However, they left on April 1 and decided to explore the area on their own, including an area near an active volcano called the Baru Volcano. This area isn't considered to be particularly dangerous for tourists to explore, but areas beyond the trail can be exceedingly dangerous. They are steep and rugged. At about 11 a.m., the women set out on the La Pianista Trail after being dropped off at the start of the trail by a taxi. The women were planning on going to the summit and then returning the same way. This hike should have taken them about five or six hours round trip. They had one backpack between them, they had their phones, 
one Samsung Galaxy, and one iPhone, a Canon PowerShot SX270 digital camera, about $80 in cash, their passports, and a water bottle. It was reported they took a local dog named Blue with them on the trip as well. They apparently reached the summit at 1 p.m., but it appears as though they decided to continue. So they were going beyond the safety of the trail. There was a waterfall deeper in the jungle. We know they had looked up the trail on a computer a few days before. Perhaps they thought they could make it to the waterfall while it was still daylight, with enough time to return in the daylight. Blue would return sometime later, but without the women. It's worth noting that a few people do not believe the dog ever went with them. There is no dog in any of the photographs they took. People in the community noticed that the women failed to return, but they decided to wait another day before contacting the authorities. The next day, the tour guide noticed that the women had missed the appointment. Family members for both women also grew worried when they did not receive a call from the women checking in on April 3, which was expected. That same day, again April 3, the authorities started searching for the missing women. The search took place using aircraft and on foot. The parents of both women also helped in the search. Even at this early point, we see all types of theories were already circulating, including the idea that some type of criminal element was responsible for their disappearance. The search was intense for 10 days and continued at a lower intensity for 10 weeks. The backpack was eventually located by a woman from a local tribe. She found it near the bank of a river. It was about eight hours from the last known location of the women. In the backpack was the camera, both cell phones, the cash, two pairs of sunglasses, two bras, the water bottle, and a passport belonging to Lizanne. The electronic devices were of particular interest to the investigators. The phones had remained active for several days after the women disappeared. The phones were used repeatedly to attempt to contact the authorities only hours into their journey, including calling 911, which is an emergency number in Panama, as well as many other countries. The first call was attempted at 4.39 p.m. on April 1 on Chris's phone. We see that 12 minutes later, another call is made using Lizanne's phone. They shut the phones off until 14 hours later, at which time they made several more attempts. They only managed to connect for one time for about two seconds at 6.58 a.m. on April 2. Lizanne's phone died on April 4. After this, Chris's phone locked because too many incorrect PIN number entries were made or someone failed to enter the PIN. This occurred 77 times between April 7 and April 10. Chris's phone required two PIN codes. The last time her phone would be turned on was April 11. After this, neither phone had any activity. In addition to the phones, the camera contained data. There were 133 consecutive photos and one missing photo. The missing photo is number 509. I'll talk more about this in the analysis. The first photos were standard tourist-type photos, selfies. They were laughing and smiling. There were a number of Chris walking ahead of whoever was operating the camera. Some people say that she looked distressed in a photo. I looked at it. I really didn't see anything remarkable in her facial expression. Other people have said they see all kinds of other things in the photos. I just don't really see anything out of the ordinary in the daytime photos that were taken. The camera activity resumed on April 8. 90 photos were taken between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. These photos were much more unusual. 
We see photos of the surroundings, the foliage. There was one with a stick and some plastic attached to it, one of a bridge, many scenic shots, but these were unusual photos. Some of them appear to be pointed at the sky. One photo appears to show Chris's hair. It's not really clear why they took the photos, maybe to capture landmarks so they could navigate. Maybe those pieces of plastic on the stick were an attempt to create a landmark that they could easily identify, and they were photographing it so they would remember what it looked like. It's also possible they were using the flash, so the photograph was not the object, but they wanted to create a flash so they could see, or perhaps they thought maybe somebody was looking for them at night and would see that flash. There can be no way to be certain that they actually took the photographs. So another possibility is that the women were not involved in taking those photos. Somebody else was with them or simply took the camera and took those photos somewhere else. Now moving back to the search, after looking at the cell phone records and the photos, investigators focused on an area near the Serpent River. This was not close to the women's original destination. In this new search area, Chris's clothing was recovered near the edge of a river about half a mile from where the backpack was located. Initial reports said that the items were neatly folded, but apparently this was not true. Interestingly, the clothing was on the opposite side of the river from where the photos were captured. A shoe was found behind a tree along the river two months later. It contained a foot and ankle. Fractures to the foot were evident. DNA testing confirmed it belonged to Lausanne. 33 bone fragments and other small samples of skin would eventually be located, some of them belonging to Lausanne and others belonging to Chris, including one half of Chris's pelvic bone. No cause of death could be determined from the remains that were recovered. Only about 5 to 10% of their bodies were recovered. Investigators would come up with what they referred to as a conclusion about a year later. It was really more of a theory than any type of determination. Here is generally what the theory says. Chris sustained an injury along the trail. The women became lost either before or after this injury. They tried calling for help, but of course they were unsuccessful. They couldn't get through to emergency services using their phones. In an attempt to get help, Lizanne left Chris behind, but Lizanne did not know where she was going. At some point, she fell a significant distance, breaking her foot, as well as sustaining other injuries. Lizanne died in the river or near the river. The rain and the river scattered the remains. Now moving to my analysis. There are two main theories in this case. The official theory from the investigators, which again said the deaths were accidental, and the theory that criminal elements were involved. So this was really a double murder. I will take a look at the evidence that supports each theory. Let's take a look at the evidence that supports the accident theory first. The women were unprepared for harsh conditions. They had little or no food, inadequate communication devices, no waterproof clothing, no compass. They had never hiked on that trail before. They were in good physical condition and young, but they were not used to the conditions in that area, like the heat and the altitude. At the top of the summit, it was over 6,000 feet. If they had encountered a criminal element, why would any of their personal property have ever been recovered, especially the electronics? One would think that a serial killer would realize the importance of disposing of those items. If they attempted to call emergency services because they were being followed, or because they encountered an attacker, how were they able to attempt to call again later on? One would think that the killer would move in right away 
and not stalk them for days, especially if the killers saw them on their phones. Also, the pictures taken soon after attempting to call for help did not indicate distress. I know some people disagree on this, but again, I didn't really see any evidence that they were upset, even in the photos taken right after they made the first attempts to contact authorities. The women took a lot of pictures. If someone else was on the trail with them, like an assailant, why didn't they take that person's picture? Of course, maybe they did, that picture 509, that again, I will take a look at momentarily. The recovered clothing did not have blood on it, neither did the backpack. Now let's take a look at the evidence in support of the idea that criminal activity was involved. Their attempt to call emergency services could be consistent with spotting somebody suspicious and walking farther from the trail, like they were driven by fear to go deeper into the jungle. Based on what we see in later photos, we know that they weren't injured to the point where they could not move, yet they continued moving away from safety. If Chris was actually injured near the time of the first emergency call attempts, why didn't Lizanne simply walk back down the trail? The search effort to find the women was massive, and these trails were regularly traveled by local residents, including residents that would walk cattle along them. So again, this wasn't considered a particularly dangerous trail. There were other people on it. They should have been found if they were anywhere near it. It really does seem difficult to believe that they would not have been located. It is reasonable to assume that they were alive for quite some time when the search was ongoing. There was an overlap there. So the searchers moved out there in plenty of time to find them alive. They just couldn't seem to be at the same location as the women. This seems very odd under the circumstances. It's almost like they were taken somewhere and then returned to the area. Now moving to the missing photo, number 509. This is interesting because this photo would have been the divider between the normal scenic shots in the daytime and the unusual shots taken at night. Based on the functioning of that particular Canon camera, if the photo was deleted from the camera, there would still be evidence of it on there. Yet none of the file was found by the experts that examined the camera. Also, the soonest it could have been deleted would have been after the first nighttime photo was taken, because if it was deleted before that, it simply would have been replaced by that next photo. The missing photo could be explained through some type of rare glitch, I suppose, or it could have been deleted using a computer, but of course the women did not have a computer with them. So this again suggests that they went somewhere else. It just seems strange that an attacker would delete that one photo, no matter what that photo contained, and leave the other photos on the camera. But either way, this is suspicious. The next item, why did they leave some type of message? The camera was capable of video recording as well as taking photos. In many other cases of people who are lost in the jungle or in any type of wilderness or remote area, we often see that they leave messages for family members, whether they write them down or record them on phones or camcorders or cameras. They do something to communicate with other people, knowing that they might likely die. They want to say something. They want their message to continue on. We don't see this from these women. The next item is the PIN code situation, like all those attempts to unlock the phone. This doesn't make sense under an accident scenario. If Chris was injured, Lizanne simply could have asked for the two codes, unless Chris was so injured she couldn't talk or Chris was killed. Maybe Lizanne did know the codes, but she forgot them after separating from Chris. 
This would explain the many attempts, like she believed she knew the right coats. She kept trying. She was getting frustrated, hoping that the next entry would be the correct one. Another possibility is that the attacker was trying to get into the phone. No codes were needed to call 911, so why keep trying to get in? This pin code situation could be used to support either theory, but I think it weighs more heavily toward the criminal theory. The backpack was not there the day before, so where it was found, the person did not see it the day before, but it had not been damaged by water. So if the river moved it to that location, how could it be undamaged by water? The last item, the condition of the remains doesn't make much sense if this was an accident. It just so happens that both of them die independently under circumstances where their bodies suffer extreme fragmentation. The jungle is dangerous, but this seems to be a little bit too much. Chris's bones appear to be bleached or otherwise treated with chemicals. So unless like a panther or something was walking around with a bottle of bleach and just happened to trip on her, this doesn't make a lot of sense. This seemed like humans needed to be involved. Now in terms of that pelvis bone, after two months, some of the tissue would have still been on that bone. There was no evidence that scavengers had torn at the bone. So just magically, all that tissue disappears from the bone in just two months. Again, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. With all this in mind, what do I think happened in this case? Well, neither theory really makes any sense. And a combination of both theories is even more improbable. Like the women became lost or injured and then ran into some type of serial killer. I think the most likely explanation, albeit unsatisfactory, is that these women were inexperienced, unprepared, and got lost. They tried calling for help, but that didn't work. They panicked. They hiked the wrong way instead of staying put and waiting for a rescue. Somehow they both died as a result of falling. This theory does not explain a lot of things like the condition of the remains, the missing photo, and the nighttime photos, but it still seems more likely than a very irregular killer who just happens to leave behind a lot of evidence, not much of which actually points directly to death by homicide. Even still, I would not be surprised if these women were murdered. I still think that's a good theory. I think this is a case where the investigation was just too lazy and improperly executed to actually generate enough evidence to converge on one cohesive theory. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com.